Genesis 20. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead, because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Didn't not, uh, did he not say to me, she is my sister, and didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? So Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had made me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his slave girl, so that they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Let's pray. Father, I know that uh, we can often suffer from spiritual ADD, tuning out the familiar, thinking that we've heard that before. Let's move on. But I ask that you would stop our minds from getting ahead of you, that we might learn from what is familiar. Help us to see not only what is similar, but also to note those important differences between these two texts. Admonish us, correct us, encourage us this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our great high priest who died for us and who continues to intercede for us. Amen. I guess it was appropriate that they called it the 
Tucson tragedy, or the tragedy in Tucson, depending on which news station you happen to look at. There's something about that that obviously, for good reasons, brings us up short and really makes us pause. When evil is unleashed in events like that, there's something that really gets our attention, doesn't it? We call that usually people start talking about the problem of evil. Why is it that this thing that is so evil happened? Yet the late theologian uh, John Gerstner said that there's a different problem at work, one that we often don't think about it because we take it for granted, and that is the problem of good. We tend to think, oh, how can such evil things happen to good people? Forgetting our depravity. That's what the unbeliever thinks. How can bad things happen to good people? But we as Christians who understand what the scriptures say about us, that there is none who does good, no, not one, how can we not ask the question, how is it that God shows so much goodness to us who are evil? That's part of what's going on here. The things that we often take for granted that somehow in this text the door is opened and we begin to see some of those things we take for granted, the things that could happen that indeed would have happened and yet by God's grace never happened. The big idea this morning is that God graciously keeps his promises despite our fear. There's that, hey, haven't we been here before? (laughs) Weren't we here last week? This is a familiar theme that seems to pop up in this part of the scriptures. Fear. Okay. Fear undermines our faith in God's promises. We talk how it blinds us into a number of things, but it also blinds us to God's promises. See, Lot isn't the only one who's moving around. And of course, he was forcefully evicted from Sodom and Gomorrah and ended up living in a cave by his own choice. But Abraham also pulls up stakes. He, he, after he looks over the valley and sees the smoke arising for a reason we're not sure because the scriptures do not tell us, he decides to pull up stakes and move on. Unlike the previous example, when he fled into Egypt, there's no, there's no famine that is at work. And so there's no, from we can tell, an earthly reason for him to move on. And yet, he pulls up stakes and he moves south to the Negev, which is on the border of Egypt. He doesn't go all the way to Egypt this time. He kind of stops. The uh, Kadesh is an oasis. And then Shur is one of the Egyptian fortress cities where they check people coming through. And remember, he had been expelled from Egypt. He's not welcome there anymore, and so he can't really go there. His resident alien card has been yanked. He's not getting in. Okay? And so he spends some time in this desert that lies between the oasis and the border, and then decides to make his way up to Gerar, which was one of the cities of the Philistines upon the coast. So, yeah. He moved from here, down to here, then over to here. Okay? There's, there you got it. I hope that makes sense. Um, and it's there, when he enters this city, that he has, to, he has to, of course, make himself known who he is, why he's there, and who's with him. And it is in that moment that fear grips him. This fear, once again, begins to arise within him and distracts Abraham from the promise of God. And let's remember, the promise has been amplified. The promise has been clarified in in recent texts so that Abraham not only has 
the promise of a seed, but now he knows that the seed will come through his wife, Sarah, not through anyone else, that's been clarified. But not only that, but when God came to let him know about what was going to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah, he also said, within one year, I'm going to come back in one year and you will have the, this child and the clock is ticking. It's almost like 24. Boop, 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 boop. Okay, he's on the clock. God's promise is about to be fulfilled soon. Soon she will conceive because within one year she will have a child. So all of this is sort of going on and and in the midst of that, Abraham somehow takes his eyes off of God and the promise of God and falls back into his old patterns. He says, they will kill me. He's afraid that there is no fear of God in them and that as a result of that lack of the fear of God, they will think nothing of killing him that they might have his wife. And so, when he presents himself at the city gate, and it seems like Abimelech was there, because this is not a huge city, it's not like Tucson, okay? but it was a good-sized city for that time, he presents himself at the city gate, Abimelech is probably there, and both he and his wife testify that they're brother and sister. Okay? He resorts to this old deception. This old pattern of sin has not ended, even though it's been... About 20 years since the first time this happened. Okay. What's, hu- what's humming and buzzing? Am I losing my mind? Okay, I'm losing my mind. That's all right. Let's go forward. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like marriage, in a, in a sense. Don't you who are married, you who have been married for a while, we'll, we'll get Nikki off the hook here. <laughs> You know, just sort of have that experience of there he goes again. Or there she goes again. Doing the same thing, you know, and you're so tempted to bring it up, like, you know, for the 14th time. You did this again. There are sins that are in our hearts that are hard to get out of our hearts. There are these patterns. And for Abraham, this pattern that's in his heart that he's having a hard time getting out is deceit, self-protection. He's thinking, he's forgetting that God has revealed himself as your shield and defender, your very great reward. He's forgotten that. God gave that that knowledge to him directly in a revelation, and he's kind of like forgetting that right now. And he's deciding, I have to protect myself, and I'm going to protect myself through this lie that we've used before, which got us kicked out of Egypt. (laughs) Okay, So he's resorting to a, a previous pattern of sin instead of trusting God. He is like Lot, not trusting God in the midst of his circumstances. The fear has blinded him. And so as a result of this, Sarah, who's about 90, is in the mind of Abimelech available. Okay. Now, initially we might look at this and go, he wants to marry a 90-year-old woman? What in the world is going on? Okay. Maybe he's 92. We don't know how old he is. <laughs> right? <laughs> that might make sense. But what, what, what is probably more likely in this instance is he knows who Abraham is. He's heard about Abraham. He knows that he is an influential, powerful man, that he is the guy who beat the four kings. And so it's very probable that he wanted a marriage of alliance with Abraham, 
to bring Abraham on his side to make sure that he's that Abraham's not going to work against him, but will work with him for trade and any number of things. That he wants to make Abraham an ally. That's most likely what's going on. And so, oh, you have a sister. Let's join our houses through this marriage. And Abraham, for some reason, doesn't say, well, you know, really. (laughs) Can't do that. He neglects the promise of God. So Abraham ends up jeopardizing the promise through his own sinful course of action, even as the clock ticks. God's promised child that would come through Sarah, and now she's in a harem. It's sort of like some of those madcap screwball comedies, like the Marx Brothers, or uh, you know, some of the, the, not quite Three Stooges material here. It's a little more intellectual than that. But still, it's sort of like, what? <laughs> when the, the completely unexpected sorts of, sort of happens and it's almost comical, that's this. What happened here? Fear, which led to doubt, which led to sin, happened here. So fear blinds us to God and his promises. We think that we're, we're on our own. So what happens, secondly, is that God restrains sin for the sake of the promise. Where our, our fear undermines faith in God's promises, God still restrains sin for the sake of the promise. God appears to Abimelech. Now, this is very rare that God would appear to a non-Christian or a non-believer. Okay? He appears to him in this dream, and it's interesting too because there's a dialogue between him and God. It's really kind of fascinating when you compare it to some of the other dreams that occur in Scripture. And he threatens him for this sin. Now, if you're Abimelech, you're going, what sin? <laughs> what, what did I do? And part of this is tied in with Genesis 12, where part of God's promise to Abraham was, those who think lightly or treat you lightly, I will curse. And so Abimelech has treated Abraham lightly by taking his wife. And so God is saying, you're as good as dead. You're messing with my guy. He belongs to me. He's my friend. He's my prophet. And you don't mess with the apple of my eye. I think he got Abimelech's attention. Abimelech, however, declares indeed that he did act in good faith. He did act, as he says in the text, with clean hands. And yet, he's still guilty. There are things we commit in ignorance, or with the best of intentions, but the sinfulness still remains. I have gotten precisely one speeding ticket in my life. That is a miracle to me. (laughs) But, (laughs) But nonetheless, the one speeding ticket I got, I crossed a county line, and I didn't see the little sign that said, reduced speed limit ahead. So I'm just cranking along, and I see the second sign, and I begin to reduce my speed so that I'm, you know, close to the legal limit. And it is then that I see the flashing lights behind me. My ignorance of the previous sign did not get me off the hook. I was guilty. My lack of knowledge... My intention to be close to the speed limit was irrelevant. I was guilty because I broke the law. That's Abimelech. 
Good intentions, didn't mean to do this, didn't mean to incur guilt, yet he still incurred guilt by his action. And yet, he did not incur as much guilt as he could have. Because God says that, well, he says that, I have not gone near her, I haven't touched her, we haven't consummated this marriage. Why was he still innocent of adultery? Because God restrained him. It says it a couple of different ways. Um, you know, wait a minute. I did this. Uh, I know you did this with a clear conscience, so I have kept you from sinning against me. And so there's that more active way of, of restraining him, but there's also sort of this thing of, of saying, I did not let or permit you to touch her. And so God is restraining sin, expressed in both ways here in the text. He restrains Abimelech in some unseen fashion. That was one of the interesting things about when I became a Christian. This didn't happen to all my sin. It basically happened to one sin. <laughs> but it was almost like all of a sudden there was like this invisible barrier and I couldn't commit that sin anymore. It was really weird. Almost like some sort of spiritual airbag. That, that, you know, I'm sort of wanting to commit this sin, but I couldn't. The Holy Spirit at work. Okay? But nonetheless, uh, he restrains, he keeps Abimelech from doing what Abimelech wanted to do. After all, he'd taken her as his wife. What is more no- you know, what's more normal than that? But then we have a question that should arise if we think about last week, right? Why did God restrain Abimelech, but he didn't restrain Lot's daughters? Attention is here. It's good for us to ask this question. And I think this, the answer to this question has to do with the reality of the promise. God is going to keep his covenant promise to Abraham despite Abraham's foolishness. There was no such covenant promise at work for Lot and his daughters. And so he doesn't, he, chooses not to restrain that sin, but for for them to experience the bitterness of their sin. But in this case, he restrains. It's funny. Not funny. It's sick to me. I've been funny, not as ha-ha funny, but odd funny. Um, When Westboro Baptist Church was still going to protest the funerals, Bill was online looking at their website. <laughs> I'll blame Bill. And, and so we're sort of reading this thing together, their proclamation, and what, and what was disturbing to me was that somehow they thought they knew what God was doing in Tucson. Without a word from God about what was happening here in Tucson. They were interpreting providence they had the arrogance to assume they knew certain things that they cannot know. That should be a warning to us. We, always, we don't always know why God does what He does. We need to be very careful when we come across circumstances and say, oh, this happened because. 
If we can see a clear instrumental means, we can speak. But there was no clear instrumental means at work in this event that we saw. And so we should, we need to be very careful. We need to avoid that. We need to have humility before the providence of God unless we have something clear like here, like there's a covenant promise at work. Then we can speak. So, God restrained sin in order to work out His redemptive purposes. That much I know based on this text. That neither Abimelech in his power as king nor Abraham in his deceitfulness is able to destroy or overcome God's promises. This is an application, this is an illustration of what we find in the latter part of Romans 8. Okay? You could just take out famine or nakedness and throw in Abraham and Abimelech. It works. Okay? They cannot separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But God doesn't stop there. He also says, return the man's wife. Abimelech must not just be sorry he took the woman. He must return the woman. He must make things right. And there are times when God says that there are certain things, you must make things right. Not just be sorry for your sin. But part of your repentance may be making things right. I, re- I didn't write this down. But when I was a kid, my cousin and I were in a bowling league, so we went to the bowling alley every, every Saturday and went bowling. And my parents... My wife again is going, you never told me this. I'm telling you now, honey. My, my mom would give me like $2 so I could get you know, a, a drink and a, and a snack or something. Well, being the covetous little kid I was, I wanted to play video games. But I didn't have money to play video games. But my brother had this huge jar filled with coins. What do you think my cousin and I did? We took money. And so every week we'd pilfer some coins and we'd go and we'd... I, I liked Death Alley Driver or whatever it was. It was just some weird game. I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, years later, after I'm a Christian, I, I feel convicted about this. And so I felt the need that I really I should make this right, not just feel bad about it. And so I sent my brother a check in the mail. And he's like, what in the world is this for? And I had to confess my sin to him. And it made no sense to him that I'm sending him a check. In, it still didn't make sense to him. That I was sending him a check in the mail. There are times when our sin requires that we, we set things right when we can. And that is what Abimelech must do at this instance. And Abimelech does not waste time. When he gets up in the morning, he calls the council, he tells them what happened, and oddly enough, they're afraid of God. Isn't that interesting? Was that the whole reason? Oh, I don't, I don't notice the fear of God here. I'm going to protect myself. And yet... Abimelech and his council act with a greater fear of God than Abraham did. It's amazing, isn't it? His superficial, rash judgment turned out to be false. His assumptions turned out to be wrong. We have to be very careful when we make assumptions about people and situations. Often they're wrong. Abraham was wrong. The fear of God was at work here. And as we see in places like Exodus 20, it is the fear of God that keeps from sin. And so it was the fear of God that kept these men from sin. Here she is. 
It's, it's sad to see that Abraham, who's supposed to be preaching the gospel, the good news to Abimelech, instead has to be rebuked by Abimelech. Things have been turned upside down. And so what we find here in this text is that God graciously restrains many sins, so desire does not become action. Let's go to the last part of this. That Jesus brings blessing despite disobedience. One of the things that about this passage that is interesting in some ways is that this is the first time the word Nabi shows up. And most of you have no idea what the word Nabi is, do you? That's okay. You're not supposed to know. Prophet. This is the first time anyone in Scripture has been called a prophet. Now, Noah was a prophet. We know that from the New Testament. You know, it calls him a prophet. But as you're reading, as it was written, the first time this term shows up, he was one who was in God's counsel and was intended to foretell. But God says, give him his wife, for he is a prophet, or because he is a prophet, and he will pray for you. Abraham's task at that moment was to pray for Abimelech that he would be healed. Why didn't God just do it? Perhaps to humble Abraham. Pray for the man that you had no faith in. Pray for this man. God uses means to accomplish his purposes. And so Abimelech was not going to be healed until such time as Abraham prays for him. And we need to keep that in mind sometimes. That though God is sovereign, he also sovereignly appoints the means to accomplish his end. And in this instance, it was the prayer of Abraham. Abraham, who in that instance, not in his sin, but in this instance of intercession, prefigures the Christ, the Messiah, who is going to pray for us that we might be healed from our sins. That we might be restored to God. And so his work is not just the work on the cross, but we see he still lives forever to intercede for us, as it says in Hebrews 7.25, that he might save us to the uttermost. Not just a little bit, but the whole way the intercessory work of Christ. But we also see that because He is our intercessor, we also have a ministry of intercession for others as well. That's why Calvin says that the mutual prayer for one another should be binding us together in unity and love. Okay, And so, as a result of His prayer, God healed Abimelech. He answers this prayer. He opens the wombs. Now, that's something we didn't know already. Suddenly at the end, we find out that the, the wombs have been closed. They were unable to bear children. So something significant happens here. I'm reminded of uh, Brother Andrew, the Bible smuggler. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Brother Andrew. But um, when he was at a, a border checkpoint, and these men are about to go through his luggage and see all the Bibles that he's not supposed to be bringing into the communist countries, he would pray, basically, Oh, God who makes blind eyes see, make seeing eyes blind. The God who is able to close the womb of Abimelech's household is also able to open not just their wombs, but Sarah's womb, that she might bear the child of promise. But there's something even greater at work here. 
Not only is Abimelech restored, but Abraham himself is restored. He's an erring prophet, and yet God shows mercy on him and continues to use him despite his, his disobedience. That he might learn that all of this is by grace. Ephesians 2. We are saved by grace through faith, not works, lest any man should boast. And so God is again, through example, ruling out our contribution to our salvation. This is all of grace. He is a fumbling, bumbling person just like you and me. It's all of grace for him. It's all of grace for us. Not only does he restore him, but Abimelech dumps a whole lot of wealth on him. Sheep, cattle, that's real wealth in that day and age. Slaves and silver. He is greatly blessed by God through Abimelech. A thousand shekels. If you were a Babylonian worker in that day and age, and you set your heart on earning a thousand shekels, you know how long you'd be busy working? 167 years. That's a whole lot of money. If we put it in U.S. dollars today, at you know, today's prices, it's only, only $11,816 based on, uh, I think, Wednesday's prices. Okay? I didn't update it this morning to see what was going on. But uh, still, that hey, I could use $11,800, couldn't you? But don't think of it in our terms, but think of it in their terms. If you had that much money and you went to a developing country, and you could live like a king for a long time on that. If you go someplace where a person earns $2 a day, you're rich, buddy. So he enriches, Abimelech enriches Abraham. Okay? So Jesus, like that, brings great blessing to us despite our sin. And it's not money. But we see, did will not he who did not spare his son, give us all things. And the context would be that we need to live upright and godly lives. Romans 8. He gives us everything we need to live faithfully in our circumstances, which is precisely how Paul learned in in, uh, Philippians 4 to be content in poverty and riches. But what's interesting here, one of, the, one of the significant things that's different from his episode in Egypt is that in Egypt, what happened? Expulsion. He was enriched, but he was kicked out. Here, he's enriched, but Abimelech says, my land is before you. He had access to the royal pasture lands. And I'm imagining that the royal pasture lands were better than anyone else's pasture lands. Okay. What's going on here? Why is it he can stay? Because God promised him the land. He did not promise him Egypt. But he did promise him Canaan. And Gerar is in Canaan. This is a foreshadowing of the conquest. 
When he's not going to get just the royal pasture land, his descendants are going to get it all. It's not just going to be some of the sheep. It's going to be all the sheep, all the cattle. Everything that is in there will belong to Abraham's descendants in the conquest. God is trying to encourage his people before they enter that land. God was with Abraham. He muffed it up, but God was still faithful. He'll be with you, though you muff it up at times. And so the same word is spoken to us. You will make mistakes. You will fall into old patterns of sin, but God's grace is greater than your sin. Your sin will not destroy the promise of God. It is greater. It is safe. It is secure. And so providence remains quite mysterious to us, which is kind of good. It's nice to be humble about these things. Why does God restrain some sin and not others? I mean, that's a mystery of providence that ought to humble us. But we must keep providence connected with salvation, that that God, no matter what he's doing, he has redemptive purposes in both kindness and difficulty. That God can indeed be trusted to keep His promises even though we can't be trusted to walk in His ways. I hope that gives you hope this morning. That gives you encouragement this morning. Because we're just like Abraham. And we need the God of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, we... We tend to appreciate grace in theory, and yet not so much in practice. Because it humbles us more than we want to be humbled. It exalts Jesus higher and higher above us as such a great Savior. Thank you for the grace that does not let us go, that does not cast us out. The grace that has the final word about us and our actions. Thank you that Jesus never grows weary of pulling us out of the same pits and the same traps that we fell into last month, last year, last decade. Thank you as your word says that you are patient even with sinners such as us. And we ask this uh, in his name. Amen.